Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Greenwood, Oklahoma was a wealthy black community in the early 1900s. Some of that wealth was built on land allotments from tribes for black native freedmen following the Civil War. We'll take a historical look at the native role in what was known as Black Wall Street. The period of prosperity ended after a series of mob assaults by white residents. We'll hear more about it right after the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous groups have condemned Canada's trucker protests and symbols. Dan Karpinchuk reports one Native leader says the so-called Freedom Convoy is a result of unabashed entitlement among privileged Canadians. Several Native groups say they do not support the trucker convoy protest in Ottawa. One First Nation, the Algonquin Nations, says it does not support the setting up of a teepee, the pipe ceremony, and a sacred fire in Ottawa's Confederation Park. It says it did not give consent for the ceremonial practices and they could cause more harm to First Nations. The Manitoba Métis Federation also says the use of Métis symbols during the protests is inappropriate and unacceptable. David Chartrand is the president of the Federation. I think they're trying to, to try to drag in the Indigenous uh, uh, message that they they got support from Indigenous people, and there is no way that we support this. A First Nation chief in Manitoba, Derek Nipanak, says the so-called Freedom Convoy is a result of unabashed entitlement among privileged Canadians. Canada's privilege or economy has been built on the oppression of Indigenous people. That has not changed, and those truths continue to build around this knowledge. How can I put energy into supporting a freedom convoy when we're still trying to find our lost children? Other Native leaders question whether the protest is really about health and vaccine mandates and speculate whether there is another agenda behind it. One Indigenous advocate said it's sad to see the kind of attention the trucker protest has raised and the children of residential schools being found as well as the calls for action on the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is all but silent. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A former tribal college student who fought for the rights of student journalists has won. Jared Nally has settled a lawsuit against leadership of Haskell Indian Nations University in Kansas. Nally, former editor of the student newspaper The Indian Leader, fought back after the former president of Haskell officially instructed him to stop engaging in news and information gathering in October 2020. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Education backed Nally and helped him with a lawsuit against the school. On Tuesday, the U.S. District Court for the District of Kansas ordered Haskell to adopt policy reforms to protect the First Amendment rights of students and safeguard the editorial independence of the student newspaper. Nally says the immediate impact will help protect free speech on campus, but hopes there will be similar impacts for students at other tribal colleges and universities across the country. It might inspire other students who have things to say and input for the school to be able to take a stand. And I think we are being watched as everything plays out publicly, that uh, other schools, other TCUs even, really look at this as an example on what a relationship with a student press needs to be and that there are consequences if students or if universities try to stifle students. 
Nally graduated from Haskell last fall. He's considering graduate school and is currently a guest editor at a magazine. Under the settlement, the university must pay $40,000 in attorney's fees. One claim still stands, which is expected to continue at the Supreme Court to hold federal officials accountable for their actions. Haskell is a federally operated university. Tribal leaders from across the country are gearing up for the National Congress of American Indians Winter Session, which kicks off Sunday. NCAI President Von Sharp will deliver the State of Indian Nations Address Monday. Native American Congresswoman Sharice Davids will give the congressional response. And U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland will update tribal leaders on federal initiatives. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, currently seeking documentary film proposals for public media television broadcasting that represent the cultures, experiences, and perspectives of Native Americans and Alaska Natives. Deadline for submission is Friday, February 11th at visionmakermedia.org. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty, and defending Native American rights since 1976 with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. You may remember the recent talk about the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. If you're not familiar with the story, it's about a wealthy black neighborhood called Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Residents owned and operated dozens of businesses there, and it became known as Black Wall Street. One lesser known fact is that some of that wealth came from native freedmen, the freed slaves of nearby tribes. A treaty after the Civil War required the tribes to issue land allotments to the freedmen. That became the basis to build their economy. Their good fortune ended when a white mob descended on Greenwood. They destroyed the businesses and drove the residents out. An unknown number of black people were killed during the two-day massacre that ended on June 1st, 1921. We're going to take this hour during Black History Month to learn about the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Native American connection to Black Wall Street. If you have questions or want to join the conversation, please give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. Joining us today from Ardmore, Oklahoma, where he is visiting family, is Dr. Maurice Franklin. He's a lecturer and consultant on organizational sustainability and development strategies, a professor at California State University, Northridge, and a founding member of the National Black Justice Coalition. He is a Creek Nation freedman, He's Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, and Cherokee descendant. Welcome to Native America Calling, Dr. Franklin. Son, thank you so much for the, uh, the invitation. Thank you for the interview. Just to clarify, I'm also freedman from the other, other tribes that were mentioned there. And it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, this afternoon. Thank you. You bet. And thank you for, for making that uh, correction, bring that to notice. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. Also joining us from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is Seisha Primo Shaw. 
She's a community organizer. She's enrolled in the Ponca tribe of Oklahoma. She's a Seminole and Chickasaw Freedman descendant and of Yankton, Dakota descent. Seisha, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate it. Well, we're happy. Absolutely. We're, we're sure happy to have you, Seisha. Dr. Franklin, the Tulsa Race Massacre, a tragedy that occurred just a little more than 100 years ago. And I think for some people, their first thought is, well, that was a long time ago. But then they realize for an event this horrific and ruthless to occur in a country that prides itself on civility, righteousness, and justice, a hundred years ago, uh, no, not so long ago at all. So please start us off today from the beginning. Tell us about Black Wall Street and how the community earned its name. Sure. Um, so, so right, it has well a hundred years ago, and you know, I think there are many of examples that would. Um, the current contemporary examples that would tell us that those kind of activities are still happening and systemic institutional racism and, you know, um, is, is still happening in this country. But 100 years ago, um, actually about 140 years ago, we, you know, we see uh, so the, the removal of Native Americans from the from the southeast into Oklahoma. And those Native American tribes that were removed, um, they came with with came traveling with them were enslaved you know, Africans who were, you know, members of those tribes, and they came into the Oklahoma Territory or into uh, what was called Indian Territory, but was later named in two states, Arkansas and Oklahoma. So what we saw traveling into the state um, were, you know, you know, descendants, uh, my descendants who were had members of all of those tribes, you know, um, enslaved members of those tribes at, as they came into the state. Um, there was a land allotment that happened uh, through uh, the federal government to the tribes, and what we what we saw was um, sort of the recreation or the creation of sort of these uh, what I would like to call communities of safety that happened throughout the entire state of Oklahoma. So uh, up around the Greenwood section there in Tulsa, we saw um, a Creek Freedmen, uh, um, Black Creek Freedmen. The literature suggests that they were moving into spaces where they were creating pockets of community, of uh, indigenous communities, uh, culturally indigenous communities. Um, Booker T. Washington, on traveling to Tulsa in 1905, he called, he, that's where he got, Greenwood got his name, Black Wall Street. He called it Black Wall Street because um, what you saw was a vibrant community of, of, of you know, uh, uh, Creek and other tribal freedmen who were living among each other. There were creating businesses, you know, they were along the waterway, which is, you know, and sort of the rail systems in that area. And they were living in what we would consider at that time a vibrant, uh, alive cultural community. Actually, what Booker T. Washington called it, um, he called it Negro Wall Street. Uh, he got his name from him. He was uh, the founder of Tuskegee. And, you know, the, the sort of the circulation of that, of that name you know, as it traveled around the country, you know, other people wanted to come into those to that area, and and you know, take advantage of the wealth or to create their own wealth. So that was, I would suggest that is, you know, really how it uh, got its name. Also during that time period, there was lots of tension happening. You know, you know, you know, we just come through Reconstruction. There were still people angry about, you know, uh, the ending of slavery. And so there were still tensions happening in communities across the country. Um, 
and um, which would lead us to, you know, and we'll we'll get to that. I know you have some other questions. I'll stop there, but would lead us to what what would eventually come the massacre. Sure. Thanks for that background, Dr. Franklin. What types of businesses flourished there on Black Wall Street? Well, I mean, these were service industry businesses that we thought so: cleaners, seamstress. You know, tailors, the kinds of, you know, um, sort of the service industry, we're, you know, we're not talking about, you know, huge corporations, but we were talking about the kinds of, uh, you know, service services that people were doing at that time period. So cleaners, um, uh, seamstress, I'm trying to, uh, cobblers, so that, those, those kinds of services and businesses. Mm-hmm. Grocery stores. Now, I understand. You know, Gro- Groceries. I understand, though, there were also some professional services as well, right? There were some dentists well, and doctors. Absolutely. There was a dentist. And, you know, my my cousin, uh, Buck Colbert Franklin, uh, was an attorney. He had his, his legal office there, you know, and he was had moved from Ardmore, where his office was bombed, uh, to, to the Tulsa area so in the Greenwood section. So he was actually living in Rentersville, but his office was in Greenwood. So, yes, there were also attorneys in, in that area as well. And some beautiful homes, many of the families owned nice cars. So, Dr. Franklin, this level of wealth that you describe, built during an era when income disparities for people of color were so vast, what does that tell you about this community and its people? Uh, we saw a community that was vibrant, that had, you know, began to turn the corner on, you know, generations of, you know, apartheid-like living. We saw... Uh, community as that you know the, as W. B. Du Bois uh, would say, the souls of black folks who, you know, when hope on hope unborn had hope, and so what we saw was uh, people who were you know beginning to live their dreams and and feel a sense of freedom, empowerment, and you know the possibilities of, of you know better qualities of life. That's what we saw in Tulsa, and that's what we saw in other you know all black towns that were beginning to uh, develop across the country. So what led up to the Tulsa race massacre? Um, I would suggest that there were a combination of things that led up to the the Tulsa race massacre. You know, the first thing was, you know, out of, uh, you know, the the integration or the the, the bringing uh, people into Oklahoma who sort of the white settlers that came in pre-statehood. The 1907 uh, Oklahoma became a state. The first law was around, you know, race mixing. That was the first. The Jim Crow law was the first law of the state uh, created. Um, and you begin to see there are two the divisions between Native Americans and and uh, their freedmen relatives in terms of either you're two things in Oklahoma: you're black or you're white. And so there was that division around uh, sort of racial identity. Um, 1915, we see D.W. Griffin's the birth of a nation. I think the movie made almost $10 million or $15 million. And so we see the spinning of tails and the uh, sort of the framing of black folks as being shiftless and lazy. And, you know, and so, the, and we also see this turn in lynchings, lynchings around 1910 from 1910 and 1920, 1930s uh, focused, uh, the lynching was, the horrific lynching was happening to black folks before as a as reign of terror. Before 1910, those lynchings that happened in the 1800s to 1910 were cattle rustlers, you know, thieves, you know, uh, primarily white and a few natives, but it wasn't as focused uh, on sort of terrorizing black folks. So we see those two things happening. Uh, there's World War One. We see black soldiers 
leaving um, their states to go, you know, fight in Europe. American soldiers not wanting to fight on the sides of 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 of, of blacks, but we saw Germans and French wanting to fight on the side of blacks, and so all of those things were happening at the same time. And we saw so soldiers coming back from Europe, uh, wanting to be treated as equal, and to be you know fully invested citizens in this country. And you know I think all those combinations at the same time. And of course we saw you know white leaders and white segregations who were you know and pastors. You know there's a pastor in Tulsa at the time who said, you know this riot wouldn't have happened or the massacre wouldn't happen if black folks would have been just like they used to be. And so you saw all of these things, which was a volatile combination that, you know, led up to, you know, the massacre and the the troop that, you know, the National Guard in Oklahoma dropping, you know, bombs, pellets onto a community. So all those combinations, you know, racial uh, divisions, you know, uh, animus, animus, hatred, um, um. The pride, um, the willingness to, you know, I'm I'm ready to defend and die for my community if I must. The young black man that was, you know, you know, just trying to have a good time and all these things. Doctor Franklin, led to that. Doctor Franklin, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go to break here. So yeah, when we come back from break, I want you to tell us uh, the specifics about what actually led to the massacre and, of course, this young man that you're going to provide uh, information about. So. Again, folks, you're listening to Native America Calling. We are celebrating Black History Month, and this week we're learning more about the Tulsa Race Massacre in Black Wall Street. So please give us a call with any questions or comments, 1-800-996-2848. We're back right after break. Inflation, Wall Street fluctuations, and confusion over trendy stocks might cause people to avoid investing. But slow and steady attention to long-term financial goals is one way Native people can build wealth. We'll get personal investing tips on the next Native America Calling. Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas, in person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived, and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about the Native connection to Black Wall Street. Do you have questions about this remarkable piece of history? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And before we went to break, we were listening to Dr. Maurice Franklin as he provides a fascinating narrative on Black Wall Street and events leading up to the Tulsa Race Massacre. Dr. Franklin, please continue. Thank you so much. Um, on May 30th of, of 20, uh, excuse me, of 1920, uh, a young black man, uh, age 19, his name was Dick Rowland. Uh, he attempted to to go into a building called the Drexel Building, uh, attempted to enter the elevator uh, in that building. The elevator was a little rickety. Um, 
as reports suggest, and he stumbled. And, and in his stumbles, he unintentionally touched a white girl. Her name was Sarah Page. Um, I call that the scream that started everything. Sarah screamed, and uh, Dick Rowland runs away and triggered someone on the first floor who accused Rowland of ripping her dress and raping her. Now, Page denied that, and you know, six months later, it was, it was denied. However, it was that event and, and her scream, even though she said it didn't happen, it didn't stop the mob from hunting down Roland. They hunted him down, they jailed him, and they were so, the community of, the white members of the community were so upset, they intended to, um, to hang him. So they were, so the word got out into the neighborhood and the communities that these white men were coming back to the jail where he had been jailed, and they were going to take him out of the jail and hang him. Well, a mob began to gather where, the, where he had been chained at the jail, uh, people thinking that he was going to be lynched. Uh, these World War I veterans were determined that that was not going to happen. And so they began to assemble, and they came down to the jail, and, you know, there was initially a fisticuffs happening. And, and you know, the veterans, the black veterans were getting the best of these white um rioters is how I'm going to describe this. They were rioters, and they were these black veterans were going to protect him and not allow him to be lynched. And and so the the fighting around the jail and into the community, um, you know, began to get worse. But one of the accounts, and this is an account that's in the Smithsonian that I'm extremely proud of as a person of African descent. I'm, it makes me proud because you know my cousin, Buck Colbert Franklin is watching all of this from his law practice and his law office outside the door. And he says that he'd never been so proud because, you know, and I'm kind of mimic the, the, the voice of his brother, but he said he saw veterans fighting back, that they were fighting back. And that made him feel proud because he, you know, knowing the conditions that we had lived in uh, and that we, that, that men were uh, from World War One were, fighting back to protect this young brother who had been falsely accused. Now, you know, all of this was happening, you know, uh, under the sort of under, still under the same mosaic that these, some of these were white veterans that had gone off to World War One as well. And these were, they were angry that they had to fly on a plane or fly back on a plane or had to you know, be side by side with black veterans. So there was all this animosity going on in communities across the country you know, um, that, you know, was just a terrible cocktail. You know, we had um, uh, outspoken, you know, for that time period, uh, Reverend Harold Cook, a pastor, leading pastor in Tulsa at the time, uh, who said that, you know, African-American soldiers in the same plane as white soldiers was why this massacre occurred. He said that in the Tulsa world, um, you know, and, and, and the Tulsa world quoted, quoted that in 2020. And so, you know, they... You know, in terms of the begin, the, the, what created the riot, you know, mm. thousands of people were displaced. There were black folks put in internment camps for weeks after this. The American Red Cross was, you know, had put tent cities up because it, so much of the of the Greenwood section, maybe about 40 acres, had been burned down. Um, those that those black folks that perhaps worked for white folks had to get, get would get a pass. Somebody would get a pass because they needed them to come work, and they would be able to get out of this internment camp to go work for them. But you know, it created a, a kind of, a, a, you know, a 
sort of a homeless system uh, for people that had been living in the vibrant communities. Many of those homes were never rebuilt. Most of them were never rebuilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know I think that if you look at it economically, you know, this is, you know, what I've seen in many of the all-black towns across the state of Oklahoma. You see a place where the freedmen have moved to for protection, sometimes on um, high plains or high, you know, high, a high hill or mountain where there was a good supply of water access, and as I describe it as social scientists, um, a, you know, a, a offensive and defensive living spaces where they could see everything coming. I, mm-hmm. I know the set among my Chickasaw relatives in, in, the, in the southern southern central part of the state where they live is there's water and uh, plenty of water and and access to all of the you know things that you need to live you know you know fishing. Uh, their animals, you know, they're being able to be self-sustained. And so that was disrupted. Uh, and, you know, politically and economically, that disruption uh, shifted. It shifted the lives, the generations of lives of, of people who uh, were living in the, in the Greenwood section of Tulsa and other uh, communities that, that had those same characteristics across the country. That disruption, you know, created a fear that okay. um, reigned over over uh, communities for for generations. Sure, Dr. Franklin, and thank you for that really really uh, descriptive detail and, and background. And this sounds eerily similar to another racially motivated and horrific crime that occurred 30 years later in Mississippi: the murder of 14 year old Emmett Till. And that's really disturbing. And you know the death toll is unknown, but historians estimate it, it might have been as high as 300. It's also estimated that 10,000 people were left homeless. Let's bring in our other guest today. We have Seisha Primo Shaw, again, a community organizer. Seisha, how you doing? I'm good. How are you all doing? Hey, Dr. Mo. Um, Dr. Mo is actually a relative of mine, so I'm excited to be on. Oh, good. We've got a family family affair here. Nice to hear that. Seisha, please help us better understand the Native connection now to Black Wall Street after Dr. Franklin's uh, really, really good historical account. What were relationships like between freedmen and the tribes during this time? So, um, as you know, as Dr. Moe uh, stated, um, Black Wall Street... Um, Quite a bit of that land uh, and some of the um, community members were uh, freedmen, whether they were Creek or Cherokee freedmen. I think predominantly they were Creek freedmen and um, and even some other freedmen descendants uh, like Dr. Moe's ancestor, which I'll let him talk more about, um, Dr. Buck Colbert Franklin, um, as well as Dr. John Hope Franklin. Uh, they, you know, were in Tulsa. Uh, and they were Chickasaw and Choctaw freedmen descendants. Um, so, you know, their land wasn't there in particular. Um, they're all in Tatums and that area. But, but yeah, they they had allotments there, um, and they did contribute to the wealth of Black Wall Street. Because uh, one thing that one of somebody who I consider a mentor has stated, uh, Eli Grayson, he's a, a Creek Freedman descendant, as well as a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. One thing he stated is that you can't tell the story about Black Wall Street 
without telling the story of the black Indian freedmen mm-hmm. in their land, right? Because they were there. And so, one, I'm going to quote him from an article uh, that he did in Indian Country Today. He said, they're missing the point of what caused the wealth and the fo- the foundation of the wealth. And what he's referring to is historians that have told this story time and time again without mentioning freedmen. And I think that's so important because there were freedmen who were from Creek Nation, who were living in Creek Nation at that time, and they had so much, some of them had so much wealth because of their land that had oil on it. Like Sarah Rector, she's a prime example. Uh, she was 11 years old. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her story. She was 11 years old. She was a Muscogee Creek Freed girl. Um because I believe her grandparents were formerly enslaved by some members of the Muscogee Creek Nation. I believe it was her grandparents. I don't think it was her parents directly. Yeah, it was her grandparents. So she was known as the richest black girl in the world, right? Um, she had she had a guardian, unfortunately, a white guardian, quote-unquote. Um, as we've been hearing about that with the discussion of you know, the Osage people, you know, who were unfortunately murdered, you know, during that time as well. Matter of fact, there's a correlation of that, um, not to go too off topic, but there's a correlation of that because the first Osage person who was murdered was murdered in 1921. So it's 100 Mm. years for that as well, over 100 years of when that, the terror started, the reign of terror, as they call it. And, you know, that's been a big that's been that story's been resurfaced because of you know Killers of the Flower Moon, you know the movie coming out, um, I believe later sure. this year. So, um, yeah. So I say all that to say there were a lot of like Creek Freedmen. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. There were a good number of Creek Freedmen who had that situation, um, and you know Sarah Rector was one of them, and um, like. Dr. Moe had stated, Doc Cousin Moe, I should say. <laughs> we call him Dr. Moe, Dr. <laughs> Franklin, as he stated. Okay. Um, you know, Booker T. Washington and even Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, they, you know, spoke highly of Black Wall Street. Um, Dr. Washington, I believe, was the only one who visited out of the two. But Dr. Du Bois also wrote about Black Wall Street and how that was like the most prosperous community in the uh, nation at that time. I mean, because it was. And so right. um, that that's the connection, I should say, to uh, the freedmen, I mean, in a nutshell. Because, uh, okay. again, like, I don't have family from Tulsa, but I have family from Boley. And Boley also was created as a result of land obtained, you know, the land, the land that was obtained was from pre-freedmen allotments. And Abigail Barnett, also a young Creek Free girl, was the one who owned that land, and that's what became Bowie. Seisha, as I understand it, um, okay, and, and Seisha, as I understand it, many of the survivors from Greenwood they they went to Bowie. Is that correct? They they relocated there after after the massacre. 
Yes, some of them did. Some of them went to other surrounding black communities, towns and communities like Tallahassee. Um, There were a few I know of that went to um, Clearview. And then there were Uh some that went to Oklahoma City. Uh, Yeah, so like people dispersed. Some of them, you know, stuck it out and stayed in Tulsa, stayed in North, what is now known as North Tulsa. And they were kind of pushed up north in that sense. Because, of course, Greenwood, you know, as we know it today, like, it was a big portion of downtown Tulsa. And I didn't realize that myself because I'm from Oklahoma City, but I didn't realize that, like, there was, you know, miles, miles of, like, businesses that were downtown. Because if you look down, you know, as you're walking, I don't know if you've ever been to Greenwood, but, like, you'll see that, like, there were, like, markers of businesses that used to exist in those locations like you know yeah that are gone and so um yeah so i mean it's it's a really interesting history and connection like i said to tribal people of that time so it really is and this this native connection i think is just so so intriguing and say shit do you know i mean all these people um disenfranchised basically lost their homes unfortunately so many people lost their lives businesses lost do you know if these oklahoma tribes that had these relations with these freedmen and these freed people were they able to support the survivors of the tulsa race massacre in any way oh are you talking about during that time period or now well, like afterwards, no, during the time period, afterwards. like after all the survivors okay. of, of the, the Tulsa race massacre, were the Oklahoma tribes able so, to support them in any way? So I, I'm not well versed on that in particular. I think, uh, Dr. Franklin could probably, <laughs> um, could probably, uh, elaborate more on that. I just know that, um, in recent times, I know that the chief of the, uh, I was going to say Chickasaw Nation, Lord. They have a governor. Uh, the, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin, is, you know, they, he did a proclamation about, you know, the centennial. Um, but uh, Maurice, um, would you like to speak to that? So the, tri- the tribes have been walking away from uh, their freedmen or the, the, the indigenous members of their, uh, their tribe. They have been walking away from the, 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 the enslaved members of their tribe. You know, since the beginning of the Dawson and the role. So by the time we get to 1907, you know, in these laws and proclamations that are happening throughout the state, you know, it's clear there's a clear delineation between, uh, and in in terms of the community culturally, you know, you know, the tribe members had been culturally a part of the the freedmen had been culturally a part of the tribes, you know, from uh, the southeast. Some enslaved, but some had married into the tribe. Some were children of members of the tribe. So it's there's not like there's two separate populations of people that oh by the way we came by boat and or by you know horse and buggy and we you know we came as enslaved on 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 that trail and you know what were they doing you know either having children and or crossing the water and you know carrying luggage and all you know took took months and months and months, you know, and through brutal weather. And so we were not just sort of the property, but we were also members and, 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 and family members there. My, my, my family uh, legacy goes all the way back to, uh, 
uh, a chief, you know, uh, William Alexander Colbert in, in Mississippi. So mm-hmm. we were part by blood of these tribes. And but slavery and the impact of white supremacy also impacted, you know, members of the tribe and leadership members of the tribe. So, you know, even, you know, though there had been this, you know, people coming into the to the territories and creating some of these townships that we that that uh, Sasha has mentioned, you know, there was, you know, had been at least some harmony in that regard. But the statehood, you know, the the uh, okay, Doctor Franklin. Sorry, we're going to have to go to break again here, but I will let you continue those thoughts when we come back, folks. Again, really fascinating discussion. Black Wall Street, the Tulsa Race Massacre. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848 with your questions or comments. This is Sean Spruce, and we'll be back right after this break. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. Scholarship applications are now open for the upcoming school year at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our Black History Month series today by focusing on the Native involvement in Black Wall Street, a historical neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was destroyed during the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. There's still time for you to join the conversation, so please give us a call 1-800-996-2848 or 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before we went to break, we were listening to Dr. Maurice Franklin, and he was giving us some more details regarding the connection between the freedmen in this neighborhood, Greenwood, which is now part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the tribes there in Oklahoma. And obviously, it's a very complex legacy. There's a lot of interrelation there. Uh, very difficult to differentiate these two communities. They were essentially uh, merged together. They were unified. They were very, very collectively, they shared a lot of history, they shared a lot of issues. So, Dr. Franklin, please continue your thoughts. Right. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say that they were merged, but they were merged by culture, blood, food, culture, language, music. There was, a, you know, which included uh, indigenous uh, Native American uh, music, as well as you know, cultures and customs that came from West Africa. So, you know, the, the food that we that we ate, you know, uh, even today, my mother makes fasofa. My mother mm. still was, I, I ate that as a child, and I'm still eating it now as an adult. And so where did that <laughs> come from? My great-grandmother cooked it. So, so, you know, that tells, and so that is how we were merged. You know, I'm looking right. around my house right now here in Oklahoma, and I see God's eyes on every window. Why? Because that's part of my culture and my custom. It was, it, it, it's almost um, unconsciously merged. And so, there are things that that we do um, that, that are part of, you know, two cultures coming together, and that, and that's what the impact of slavery and marriage and um, 
the creation of children. Uh, that's what it created. And so Tulsa or Greenwood and other communities throughout you know the state and Mississippi and other places throughout the country where natives and uh, of people of African descent uh, lived together either through forced slavery or you know after that because of the culture and the language that we all shared. You know, you see, uh, you know, those uh, those signs um, that, you know, look very similar and same. So I, when we, sometimes I just want to make sure that we're real clear that something happened, something structurally and politically happened, you know, that at least in the 1900s that created some more division between populations that um, had in some ways started to um, act as one society. Okay. Seisha, I understand you've got some, some quotes and some testimony from survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. I, I know some of them testified before Congress last year. Can you share some of those quotes from, from those survivors? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> uh, Maurice and I, uh, did a show on Clubhouse. I don't know if you're familiar with <laughs> the Clubhouse platform, but you basically get to talk to different folks who, uh, you know, like have a shared interest in whatever, you know, topic. And uh, we're pretty big on the genealogy community, um, the genealogy community, uh, well, Clubhouse community. And so... Uh-huh. We decided during the centennial, around the centennial, to read some accounts of some of the survivors. Now, most of these survivors have since walked on. Uh, however, there's a few that really stood out to me because some of them were literally little children. Uh, and it was it's, – it's some accounts that, again, trigger warning, <laughs> you know, that okay. it's kind of hard to listen to. Uh, but they're they're important and they're powerful because these are like that those memories. Yeah, please. Like, sure, please yeah. read 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 a couple of them, please. Okay, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to start off with one by Blanche Cole. She was born and she's deceased. Uh, she was born April 21st, 1904. So, you know, she was. So she would have been uh, about 15 years old, teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she, yeah, I would say she was a little bit older, but her her account, you know, was one that stuck out. Okay. She said she stated we found that we had lost everything. Everything we owned had been stolen or burned. I wonder why we had come back. There was nothing to come back to. The rented house was badly burned and everything stolen or burned. Even my child toys and treasures had been taken. What the mobsters hadn't stolen, they scattered about, set it on fire, or smashed and damaged it. I just sat down and cried. I was a nervous wreck. And that was her account. And then another one, um, Carrie Humphrey Cudjo, uh, she actually, uh, her husband was a Seminole Freedman descendant. Uh, She said, my parents, David and Hattie Humphrey, who moved from Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, to Tulsa. At the time of the riot, they lived at 2111 North Lansing Avenue in a home which they owned. They attended the Holiness Church on the corner of Marshall and Lansing. 
The pastor was Reverend Nichols. There were six children there. We had a house, a horse, a cow, and some chickens. Our house was burned down during the riot, and we lost everything that we had. The riot was an awful thing. It scarred us. And she actually, um, the address that she mentioned is actually not too far from a a good friend of mine. So, I mean, that puts a lot of stuff in perspective just to, you know, think about. Absolutely. How, it really, really brings know, it close to home. Big it was. Yeah, sure, very, very sure. close. Yeah. So, um, and then there's one more. Um, Say, sure, those are. And, oh, go ahead. Okay, let's go ahead and hold off on that one more because we do have some callers, and, and I do want to take a call. But I just want to thank you again for the really powerful and moving testimonies that you're sharing today. We have uh, one listener, Drew, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was listening online. Unfortunately, he could not make the, make the call, but he did just want to comment and say that he appreciates the show and also the history that you folks are sharing today. Uh, and we do have a listener also on the line, Kat. She's listening on KUNM in Isleta, New Mexico. Kat, you're on the air. Oh, hello, folks. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I really want to say thank you for bringing the Black History right today to Native American calling because a lot of us do have children that are of African now descent, now that we've married into these families. And um, I'm just so glad to hear this, that you have opened up your arms to hear this reality and this history that they're giving us. Um, I love you guys. I hope that the world finally realizes that we're really all brothers and sisters. And we really need to come together, and we do need to look at our history. Our children do need to learn the history. Otherwise, we just keep on doing the same old thing. Guys, we have to love ourselves so that we can love each other. Thank you. I love Black History Month. Thank you so much. And Kat, thank you for that really, really kind and and warm tribute to Black History Month. And... I wanted to ask Seisha again because you were reading these um, these testimonies, and I, you know, I, I went ahead and did some research as well. And and, and one of the the testimonies that I read was from a, a 107 year old survivor named Viola Fletcher who testified before Congress. And I think this it jibes with what Kat just described. And Viola testified that she went to bed on the eve of the massacre, and in the neighborhood that she lived in, it, it was rich, but not just rich with money, but rich in culture and heritage. And then she woke up and her whole world had changed. So Seisha, what I really want to ask you is, what is the most important thing that we Native American people need to understand about the Tulsa Race Massacre? Um... I would say that they had, you know, that like we all had relatives there and that, you know, as someone who is both black and indigenous, the freedman descendant, as well as a descendant of Plains people, that it, that trauma, um, especially when you are like with the freedman, um, issue, I should say, um, that has happened in the five tribes. Like we have to navigate through this world, not only, you know, being people of African descent, being black presenting people, but also 
wanting to latch on to a native heritage and you know we just want you know for our native relatives to understand that like we're dealing with a double trauma and that you know at the end of the day like we're still relatives and you know we need to be accepted as such instead of you know othered uh because again like i've seen and i've personally experienced that othering um and it's it's not it doesn't feel good <laughs> you know it, it hurts like and i think that um you know once we all understand like we're all relatives at the end of the day whether you're native or not i mean you know especially with freedmen because some freedmen are of native descent you know some aren't you know some are just of African descent, but at the end of the day, like they're still relatives, like their people were culturally of those tribes. Right. And so, um, that's what I would say. And let's go to today, Seisha. What are relationships like between freedmen and those five civilized tribes in Oklahoma? Well, <laughs> I would say for one tribe, um, I mean, I can't, speak for them in particular, but from what I've been told from relatives of this nation, Cherokee Nation, things are better because they like they have a chief who fully supports freedmen descendants. Um, chief Hoskin, as you know, he did uh, support a constitutional amendment that made everyone Cherokee instead of having like a label, you know, freedmen versus by mm-hmm. blood, quote unquote. But um, for the other four, um, I uh, you know, like I said, I can't speak for everyone, but I do know they don't seem very good with, like, you know, at least three of them. Um, now, the Seminole Nation, the freedmen are, they have been reinstated, but they're still fighting to get full rights. And um, that that chief right now, uh, the chief uh, Johnson and assistant chief Palmer, have been uh, very friendly towards the freedmen. Um, I can say that for a fact because, uh, you know, uh, the band chiefs have been working with them uh, as well as uh, my grandmother. You know, she used to serve on the council, and um, they respected her a lot, and they said actually, you know, her influence actually helped them see this issue in a different light. So, um, you know, so I think things are going to get better because uh, they can get BIA, um, you know, well, not BIA, IHS uh, benefits now. So things are getting better. But um, the other three, I don't know. I heard about a listening tour that the Choctaw Nation was supposed to do. I don't know, and Creek Nation too, I don't know if that's going to be a thing, but just from Friedman descendants that I keep in touch with, in particular, the Creek Nation, I always say they're next in line, more than likely, because um, I work w- I work with Rhonda Grayson, um, as well as Jeff Kennedy, and um, Ron Graham, and um, Eli Grayson, like, and all those folks who are trying to get uh, trying to get this done. Um, they said it hasn't really been, you know, like like as successful as it should be. But I, I do believe that we will get to a point where the freedmen for four of the tribes, like they will be fully reinstated. The Chickasaw freedmen, uh, per their 1866 treaty, they didn't adopt, formally adopt their freedmen descendants. Uh, so I'm not sure how that's going to pan out, but 
like with my family, my ancestor, Irvin McCain, like he was of Chickasaw descent. And he was trying to get on the by blood rolls back in the early 1900s. And he wasn't able to be successful in that. However, there were some that were not a whole lot. I'll probably say a small number of Chickasaw freedmen who were able to get on the by blood rolls back then, you know, because they were able to um, somehow, you know, get it changed by proving that they had ancestors who were their Chickasaw owners, you know, but my family wasn't one of them, unfortunately. So um, I don't see them being reinstated in the Chickasaw Nation. But, um, you know, again, like, it, it's it's just a hard situation, I would say, for for many of them. I mean, because it's, it's, it's okay. a lot of hurt feelings. So right. that, that's the only for way sure. I can describe it. <laughs> Okay, oh, yeah. I understand. And you know, we, we're going to have to wrap up the show here in just another minute. But I am curious, Seisha, for somebody that wanted to go visit some of this history in person, Greenwood is still a neighborhood in Tulsa, as I understand it. And you mentioned there are some signs and some plaques and things like that. But uh, what's it like now going through Greenwood? It, can you? Is there much in the way of um, history there to or information to let visitors understand? about these events that occurred 100 years ago? So one really cool place to visit, I would say, would be the Greenwood Cultural Center. It's been there for for a while. Um, and okay. the Terrence Crutcher Foundation is actually there, too. Like, people can, like, go there to, like, actually look at the firsthand accounts, but also, like, see different pictures of survivors and, like, read old newspapers of... Uh, that are great existed and so yeah great okay thank you for that information folks unfortunately we've now reached the end of the hour and our thought-provoking discussion on the legacy of black wall street i'd like to thank our guests dr maurice franklin and seisha primo shaw for sharing their insights knowledge and wisdom join us tomorrow for a discussion about investing i'm sean spruce thanks for listening Healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities, Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a seven month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition free to tribal members. Registration deadline is February 21st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show.
Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.